0: So, if the rest of you, if you've got a Bible with you, you can turn to 1 John, chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's some in Abel Hall, you can sneak (laughs) over there. There's some right against the wall there. there. That's great. So, we've been studying 1 John together and we're right near the end. Not quite, but almost there. I think uh, a lot of Bible commentators are correct when they say that the text we looked at last week is actually the, what you might call the proper conclusion of the letter. That's where John makes really clear, um, gives the final explanation as to why he's written the letter. And so that's in verse 13 of chapter 5. It says, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So he's writing to believers. So that you may know that you have eternal life. So you're supposed to know. That's what we talked about last time. That's the proper end, job done. The letter is over. Except, um, he doesn't quite end there. So, with everything he, with everything he said, I think some thoughts came to mind while he was finishing up, and he wanted to continue and add these thoughts and he's probably thinking I'd better write these down while they're in my head something like that I'm guessing about that but his thoughts go from our security in Christ which we talked about last time and the assurance that should accompany that security in verse 13 he he moves to the subject of prayer which is quite interesting that that's what he would be thinking about at this particular moment because prayer also is a matter of assurance Knowing that God hears us and that He cares to pay attention to what we, our problems and our needs and what we bring to Him, so um, assurance and salvation and assurance and prayer are very intimately related. Because if you don't know Him, you've got zero assurance He's hearing your prayers, and He has no obligation to either. He has no commitment to hear your prayers. But um, it's when Christians pray, it's not uncommon. And so, if you feel like you're weird or you're not strong or something well um if you ever feel like these am i really being heard like i've prayed about this and nothing's changed immediately or visibly in my world so are my prayers getting through am i saying them properly is there uh why does god seem so quiet is there some sort of block there what's going on those are real questions that sometimes arise in our minds and uh, bother us when we're praying and we don't seem to see something happen based on our prayers. So John wants to carry this idea of assurance forward into the realm of prayer because he's talked about it with regard to our salvation. God does answer prayers and he does it amazingly. Not always exactly the way we want and I guess that's where the trouble comes in. Sometimes Super surprisingly, direct answers. Other times, oh, that's what you were doing. You know, I never did get that. You know, it wasn't even what I was asking for. And you arranged things to be this way. So he's talked about prayer before in chapter three. In fact, if you can read that back there, if you want to, I'm going to read chapter three, verse 18 and following. But of course, he was talking about love. That's the big theme of his book. But he said, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth, in verse 19, Chapter 3, verse 19, we will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him in whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Great passage. Then verse 21, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. So, However long ago that was when we were in chapter 3, we talked about all those things. But um, I really want to focus on the word confidence because that was a big theme when we were there. And that's a Greek word, paresia. You don't have to know that. But what we've seen, um, we've seen that word a few times in the book already. And sometimes it's translated boldness. And paresia in Greek culture was the right of every Greek to speak their mind, most cultures have restrictions on speech, and we 're starting to have more restrictions on speech in our culture. Oh you you said that 's a manhole cover <laughs> you 're out of here, um, whatever the thing is, you know but um, things like that, but uh a Greek had the right, certainly a citizen had the right to say whatever he wanted about anything. And he could criticize the rulers, he could do this or that. He just, it was the right, paresia, boldness. We had this confidence or freedom to speak our minds. So, um, now of course that word gets has many permutations and is used in different ways, but um, has that same idea of confidence or freedom to speak. So we can, and I hope we would do it humbly, we can approach God with this same confidence because why can we approach God? He sees us who believe as his children. That's why we have that kind of confidence. So in Christ, people that were rebels against God and people that are committed sinners become beloved sons and daughters. That's that wonderful transformation that happens. And he, our father, wants to hear from us. So we should come with confidence. The same word is used in chapter five, verse 14, actually. This is the confidence which we had before him. So there's, here's where we are today, verse 14 of chapter five. Same word, parasia, confidence. This is the confidence we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So then this assurance should have we should have in our in our being, God's children, this assurance is directly applicable to our prayer life. A Christian is not to live in terror that God is going to be angry when we come to him with our needs and things like that. I know some churches like to hammer fear into people. That's how they control people. But that's not a biblical motive for the Christian. I mean, the primary motivation for our lives is not fear. Now, of course, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's the fear of the Lord, not the fear of people around you. We must always affirm what the Bible says. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's true. That is as true today as it was in the Old Testament when it was given, and as true as it is absent today for most people. Most people don't have any fear of God at all. But the fear of the Lord is not abject terror for a believer, it's respect and honor. And our fear is, I don't fear the Lord blasting me. I fear disappointing him. That's the way, that's the way we fear the Lord. We have so much honor for him. We respect him so much. Our fear is that uh, we would blow it and, and hurt his cause. That's, that's the fear that a believer has. God is an infinite being and he spoke The universe into existence so it's natural to be amazed at that and uh, in awe of that but we're talking about him having infinite goodness and infinite perfection moral perfection he's our creator he is the judge of the world he's going to judge the living and the dead so those in rebellion against him they should be quaking in fear because of who he is a perfectly moral God who's going to hold you accountable But a man or a woman in Christ, they know that same infinite, perfect God as a father, not as a a judge. He's a redeemer, he's a savior. In fact, since God came among us in Christ, became a true man and lived as Jesus of Nazareth, we know God through him and his sojourn among us. You look at Christ, you know what God is like. So we see him in Jesus and he What did Jesus say he came to do? To seek and to save that which was lost. That's why he came. That's what it's all about. That's why we're here. He found us. He loves us. So we who come to Jesus are forever the objects of his compassion and love. And last week we talked about how nothing can change that. Nothing can change that. God's power keeps us, Peter says. And John in his gospel, he quotes um, Jesus, John chapter 10, verse 27. We read it last week, but my sheep hear my voice and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one can snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. That's what he said. I like that verse. I love those words. But we are still most imperfect creatures, are we not? We still blow it sometimes. We still have some sins that we're fighting, hopefully fighting, getting rid of. But being in Christ means that our eternal destiny is tied to him. It's bound up with him. We are secure in him. We sometimes stumble as we grow, as children do, but as Paul famously says in Romans 8, 1, who knows it, therefore there is... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. So when we come to God in prayer, he has not got a condemning attitude towards us. He has a fatherly attitude. So remember that. Remember that always when you come to the Lord as a believer in prayer. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So a Christian never prays to God as one under condemnation. We're not under condemnation ever. That's never the way you're coming to God ever in your Christian life. We stand before God justified by the blood of Jesus. And much more, we're adopted into his family. I couldn't help but think of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, where it says, In love, he predestined us as sons, as it predestined us to adoption as sons, Through Jesus Christ to himself, he predestined us, he ordained that it happened that we be adopted into his family in Christ. According to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Who's the beloved? Jesus is the beloved. So if you're in Christ that's all true. You're adopted into God's family. Does that sound sound like he wants us to be in terror of him? right, Paula, it doesn't sound like that. Yes, thank you. She's shaking her head. Good girl. We are adopted children. So as a Christian, now, we are also God's representatives on this world. A light to the world is how Jesus put it. We're to be salt and light in the world. Paul called us ambassadors in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So, a church is an embassy on earth representing God's interests and we who know the Lord are ambassadors working out of this particular embassy to the world, the world that's lost, the people, the people that Jesus came to seek and to save. And yes, God does care very much about how ambassadors behave. You know, if an ambassador goes to another country and acts like a total moron and a jerk, it makes your country look bad, right? Well, that's what Americans are like. That's the way people would think about that if somebody was a fool and an ambassador. So we're supposed to behave like we're citizens of the kingdom of God, right? For God's glory and his honor and his kingdom. We're representing his kingdom. So he cares that you live what you believe. And people will draw conclusions about him based on seeing you and how you conduct yourself. So to help you along when you're stubborn, he is quite willing to admonish you with not terrorize you, not condemn you, but bring a little parental discipline into the situation. God does do that. The book of Hebrews talks about God as a father, not as a judge, but as a father. Let me read this, Hebrews twelve five. It says, you've, you're probably very familiar with this. You've forgotten the exhortation, he says, which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him, for whom the Lord loves He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, you are illegitimate children and not sons. If God isn't bothering to discipline you, you're not His child. You're an illegitimate son. You're just claiming something that isn't true. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good. That we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Mm. That's what a good parent wants for every child, right? Even if they're an unbeliever, they don't know what the peaceful fruit of righteousness is, but they want them to grow up in a way where they're not a poorly behaving adult. They want them to grow up to be mature and wise. And I was disciplined as a child, justly, (laughs) Um, it helped me, it, right? It helped me be a better person. It drove sinful wickedness out of me in certain ways. Not enough to save me. <laughs> Only the Lord can save us. But it made me a better person to be disciplined by my, my father. So most of us had parents. And, and he says there, they did the best they could. As best that they could understand it, that's what they did. You know, most, most dads do that. Some dads are horrible. But God does it perfectly. He disciplines Perfectly. For the right purpose. To bring forth the peaceful fruits of righteousness in our lives. So I hope as a parent you want your children. I hope you want them to speak. paresia Freely with you. About their struggles. About their hurts. About their troubles. About their questions in life. They should feel like they can do that. God is the perfect father though. In just that way. He wants us to bring these things to him. That's what he's like. Hebrews 12.10 says, Our parents disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But God, God has no failures as a father. He's a perfect father. There's no confusion. There's no personal baggage he's dealing with. Uh, no idiosyncrasies that he has to interfere with good parenting. His parenting is perfect and designed for your growth and your ultimate good. That's what he's like. And because he is sovereign, your burdens and your problems are for your good, ultimately. Or they will enable you to do good to other people and sympathize with other people. I sympathize with a physical pain and uh, that lasts a fairly long amount of time because I've been through it. I, you know, if you don't, have never been through it, you're sympathetic, but not in the same way as if you've been through it. You've had months and months of agonizing pain. That, that brings you to a point where you go, I kinda know what you're going through, right? So sometimes he allows those things so we can sympathize with other people. He is infinitely wise. So learn to rest in God's sovereign goodness. Just rest in it. Whatever you're going through, it's purposeful. But we should never be fearful To approach him as our Father. Not afraid because there's no condemnation. Jesus' teaching on prayer really drives this home. Uh, Prayer always with a right understanding of God. You want to pray always with a right understanding of God and how he sees you. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this Matthew chapter 7, verse 7 Ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you when his son asks for a loaf will give him a stone? Now that's a bad father. Can I have some bread? Here, here's a rock. And don't bite it. Because I'm not paying the dental bills. Or he says if he asks for a fish will he give him a snake? Now some kids might want a snake but you don't give them what they want. He says, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? So he's not going to give you a stone if you need bread. He's not going to give you a, a snake if you need fish or whatever the thing is. Never, never treat God, never think about God as though he is not as good a dad as you would be, because he's infinitely better. He's a perfect dad, perfect. He's better by far than you or me, and he has infinite knowledge. So he has a higher purpose also for everything. So his infinite knowledge is working for this higher purpose and for your good altogether at the same time. It's coming in. It's, prayer of a Christian is coming into alignment with what God is doing. So, you know, Christians shouldn't pray like it's an incantation, you know, trying to get some kind of blessing or something like that, or or a formula to just get what we want. That's how pagans pray. It's funny, Laura and I got to go see The Hunchback of Notre Dame the other night at the Academy Theater. Um, The 1939 movie. Say, I love Golden Age movies. And it was really amazing, but they have a scene in there where everybody's in church and they're all praying and they're praying, Lord, make me beautiful. Lord, get me a husband. Lord, make my business succeed. Let my business venture. All these selfish things. And then the, this gypsy girl's over in the corner, is Esmeralda, and she's praying, Lord, save my people. Because she's thinking about helping others where they're all very selfish. It's really a great scene, the way, because that's how people do pray. Give me this, give me that, make this happen. That's how pagans pray. Christians don't pray like that. Christians take all the things John has said about love and first John and laying down your life for others and seeks that. That's what our heart is to, to bless other people. So we don't have, prayer is not a formula. It's not an incantation to make something happen for you. It's coming into alignment with God and his purposes for your life. That's what prayer for a Christian is. That's why John says what he does in verse 14. This is the boldness the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will he hears us so we always ask according to his will if you know God if you treasure God if you believe in him as he's revealed himself we will always prefer his will over ours why would I want my will if his will is perfect why would I want my will if my will is tainted with selfishness sometimes and his never is So I want His will to be leading my prayer life. And we have the greatest example of that here in the Bible, of that kind of prayer, the greatest possible example. The other day on Monday in our Through the Bible in a Year discussion group, we were talking about Jesus in the incarnation, because we're reading through all the Gospels. God the Son as true man, and we were talking about how much He actually knew as a man. Did Jesus know what was going on in China? Did he know what was going on in Rome when he was uh, working in Zipporah's building houses or whatever he was doing for the 30 years of his life before he uh, started his ministry? Did he know all of those things? In the incarnation, did he know what was happening on Mars? Was he thinking about that? Did he lay down in his bed at night and go, you know, there's a storm on Jupiter tonight. And uh, things like, I don't think so. I don't think so. We need to remember that Jesus lived as a man very much like we do. He learned... He learned, he learned to read, he learned to build uh, buildings. Luke says of his youth, Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. He grew up like a normal person. He didn't come out of the womb speaking Greek, (laughs) you know, he had to learn languages and he, he he was a real human, a real person. Now in his ministry, he certainly displayed supernatural knowledge and his authority was absolute on any topic that he spoke to. But John's Gospel points to these kinds of things, it gives us the sense that these kind of things were being, the miraculous knowledge was being revealed to him by the Father. Not too different than, than a, I mean maybe substantially different in, in ways that only he would know, but not, from our point of view, not that different than the way a prophet would have special divine knowledge. Given to them from God directly, just a, an, another human being. But here's what Jesus said in John's gospel, John 8, 28. I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father has taught me. And then right after that, a few verses later in John eight thirty eight, he said, I speak the things which I have seen with my Father. And then John 12, 49. The Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as what to say and what to speak. So he's very much the servant. You know, um, Paul says he emptied himself to become a man. So he emptied his infinite knowledge. He didn't take advantage of his infinite knowledge. He didn't stop being God at all, but he didn't use that knowledge. He became a bondservant. That's what Paul says. He left heaven to become a bondservant, to serve God. So whatever the father's telling him to do, that's what he's going to do. So as the perfect man, he did what the father revealed he should do and speak. We also know that as a man, Jesus had an incredibly deep prayer life. He made time to pray every day. So if he was an infinite knowledge of God and everything God's doing in the universe all the time, he wouldn't need to pray, but he did need to pray because he was a human being and he lived like we do. That's why he can identify with all of our problems because he had a life like ours. He was a working guy, working class man, living in a conquered country. He wasn't even a citizen of his own nation. So he did what the father wanted and he prayed, he prayed and prayed. And I was thinking through, our, through the Bible discussion later on, I was thinking about this very intense and bracing really example of Jesus needing in prayer to align his human will with the father. And you can probably guess what I'm thinking, the garden of Gethsemane, right? I mean... What an amazing thing. Let's look back at Matthew chapter 26. You can go with me there for a minute. So Jesus had a Passover meal with his disciples. He, he washed their feet. He sent Judas off to betray him. He told the others that he was going away. And there's a long conversation he has with them. It's, a lot of it's recorded in John's gospel. And he told them to love one another because he was going away. Now he had told them before, back in Matthew chapter 16, 21, he said, the Messiah, he must suffer many things from the elders, chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised on the third day. So he had told them that many times before, several times before. So he came among us to die. Why would he want to die? To pay for our sins and reconcile us to God. Because some sacrifice, a true sacrifice, had to be made for the sins of mankind. He knew it all along. He knew that was his purpose. It was never a surprise that that was going to be his end. He knew that. But when the day came for that to actually happen, when the moment of his being arrested was literally just hours away, his humanity recoiled at what he was about to experience. Not getting arrested. And not even so much the horror of dying by a method of incredible torture. Which the Romans made the cross of, the ultimate torture machine. I'm sure he recoiled at that. But even more, bearing in his person the wrath of God for all humanity. All of your sins, all of my sins, the judgment for that put on him. To actually experience that. The weight of it, experiencing the wrath of God becoming a curse for us, the way the Bible says. It was overwhelming. So look at Matthew 26, 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. He said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. So he tells his three closest friends and disciples, Peter, James, and John, that his soul is grieved almost to death. Is he just putting on a show or is that how he really felt? It's how he felt. It's how he felt. That's a human reaction. Is there any way out of this? So verse 39, he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. So look at that carefully. Jesus knows his mission, his purpose for becoming a man which was to render himself a guilt offering as Isaiah says in the book of Isaiah. He doesn't question that purpose that God has for him. He doesn't refuse but he asks. He's praying, he asks. He will experience the full blast of divine wrath for you and me So he prays, he turns his eyes to heaven and he says, my father, if it's possible which has to mean he doesn't know if it's possible or not or he wouldn't ask that. There's things he didn't know. So as a man, he's coming to this situation and he wants to know if there's a plan B another way some other method of saving millions of people from hell. He wants to know, is there some other way this can work? He wouldn't pray that if he didn't have some kind of limited knowledge. So as his humanity recoils at the thought of what must be, he asks, and again, it's not a performance, he he asks for aid to carry this out. He wants to know that this is the only way. It'll help him to know this is the only way. So that's why he brings it to the Father. And Luke says when he prayed this. Luke twenty-two forty-four, He was in agony. Praying fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood. Falling on the ground. So he wasn't praying. He was praying. Praying. Agony. Fervently. He so desired that there might be another way. That the Father might know of some way. That he hasn't yet shared with him. That would achieve the same end. He just feels it. He feels the weight of it physically. I don't know if blood was. Capillaries were popping in that fervency. Or the blood was falling like. The sweat was falling like blood. Or if it actually was bloody. Some people believe it actually was. But what an intense prayer he's praying. Here's the thing though. With all of that overwhelming grief and in the midst of such agonizing anticipation of what's going to happen on that day, he prays this, yet not as I will, but as you will. That's verse 39 of Matthew 26. Not as I will, but as you will. Never forget those words. Then Jesus goes back to his three friends for a little encouragement, and they're sleeping. Had a big meal four cups of wine. It's all part of Passover and a lot of emotional conversation. They've been through it all that night, so they're sleeping when he asks them to watch. So his earthly support personnel are not up to the task. He warns them in verse 41, he says, "Keep watching and praying so that you may not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing but the flesh is weak." That's where that expression comes from. So he goes back to the place of prayer, verse 42. He went away again a second time and prayed saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. So now it's, if there is no other way, your will be done. I will do your will. So not as I will, but as you will. And then your will be done. So the incarnate son of God has real feelings and he submits everything he feels to the Father's will. Even if that will is contrary to his most intense desires. Which is to not go through that. He loves the Father. He spent eternity with the Father. He's, he's the Son of God. And why should he be punished as a sinner? Well, he knows why. He's there to do it. But if there's another way, let's do the other way. So here in 1 John written by one of the men who slept while he was praying tells us this and all of our prayers should be like this have this in mind so verse 14 again this is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will he hears us so according to his will when the Bible says he hears us whenever it says he hears us it means he's answering us in some way. It carries the idea of he answers us. So look at verse 15 now. We're moving. This is the second verse. Verse 15. And if we know that he hears us. In whatever we ask. We know that we have the requests. Which we have asked from him. This is really interesting the way he says this. So he hears us. Never doubt that. Sometimes we wonder if he hears us. He always hears. The Lord hears. And then it says. And here's this interesting phrase, we know we have the requests. It's not quite the same thing as saying he'll give you exactly what you asked for, but you have the requests. So the Lord hears and we have whatever it is we're praying about. Yet, back up to verse 14, at the same time we're told to ask according to his will. So in our feeble little minds, we have to be able to put those two concepts together. We have what we've asked for and we need to pray according to his will. So we just saw in Matthew's gospel kind of our model here. Jesus is our model for all of this. Our prayers should follow along the lines of this is how I feel. This is what I'd like to see happen. But your will be done. And I'm good with it. I'm good with it. This is my desire. But you know better than I do. So not my will but yours be done. If you pray like that always then you actually have your request. It may not be the details of what you want to have happen, but you've got your answer. Because you know, God's will is always best, because he has infinite knowledge and you don't. You've got very tiny knowledge. He has infinite wisdom, and you don't have infinite wisdom, and you don't know everything that's going on. So, but you may confidently regard whatever his answer is as your answer and that's whatever he chooses is your answer for your request you will have your request so having your request must mean this having an absolute confidence that God heard you that he loves you as his child and he will do the right thing that's your answer your general answer for all your prayers that's the only way I can think to bring these concepts together and this conclusion This conclusion, not coincidentally, glorifies God the most and matures our faith the most, which is exactly what he wants to see. So when I I ask, God is on it, you know, if you want to use that expression, and I'm good with him being on it. When I ask, he always hears, he loves me, that nothing will change that, and he's on it, he's on that request. So whatever he does then, I'm good with it. I think that's the way you're supposed to see this. So I have my request, whatever he says. He might say yes, he might say no, he might say I'll do this instead. And we say okay, that's good. Even if we don't understand why it's good. He's got some purpose. So I have my request, I have it, I will trust him with it, I'm good because he hears, my request is acknowledged and he cares about it, he does care about it. So something more is happening when we pray like Jesus then more than just leaving it up to him. Lord, you know, I know you know all things. So I'm going to let you have it. These ears, you can have it. It's more than that. It's different than that. It's more than just hoping that my prayer somehow lines up with God's will, which is a better place to be. But if we know, as verse, verse 15 says, if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. So you see, we're not resigning grimly to his will there. All right, your will. Whatever you say, I know. You're God, I'm just a little peon. No, 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 no. We regard we regard whatever he decides as a true answer, even a fulfillment of our request. One well, takes faith to believe that. Yes. Yes it does. That's exactly what he wants from you. Your faith. So we trust. We trust that his decisions are, are good. So I think perhaps the biggest takeaway from all this. Is not, to treat, is not to treat prayer as a perfunctory thing. I say these prayers. I hope it happens. But. Rather it's, it's what we do. If there is a need. Uh, uh, we pray and we hope for the best. It's more than that. God hears, and if we ask according to his will, being fully reliant on his wisdom, fully reliant on his plan, and his goodness towards his people, that's us, then we have confidence in prayer, boldness in prayer. It's not a perfunctory thing. It's not a, I just hope for the best thing. It's that. The more we line up with God's will, the more our hearts line up with God's will in a general way. It's a wonderful outcome for your prayer life if you can get to the point where you can have a a thing you're praying about and and know that God hears you and know that He loves you and you're totally comfortable letting Him decide how to work all that out. That's a mature place. That's where you wanna be in your prayer life. Now in verse 16 and 17, John moves directly into one area for prayer. And John, being consistent with the whole letter, He's thinking about praying for other people, just like Esmeralda in The Hunchback of Notre Dame. He's he's thinking about praying for others, not himself. But here again, as we've seen in this chapter, we have this really difficult interpretive issue with this text here. So what John writes is really clear to him, and it was probably really clear to his readers, but it's not so clear to us. So verse 16 says, If anyone sees a brother committing sin, not leading to death, He shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit a sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. What's the question here? Well, my question is, well, what is the sin leading to death that we don't need to bother praying about? That's my question. And if you come back next week, we'll discuss it together. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we lift our thoughts to you now in prayer. Your will is that we pray in confidence, not fear. The confidence of our being your children. The confidence that you are a perfect father. The confidence that you know best. Remind us often of what John has shown us today because that was a great prayer life that he had, imitating his Lord. So we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.